The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us. My name is Darren Smith, pastor here, senior pastor here at Tower View Baptist Church. On behalf of our staff of Nelson Nisley, Pastor Nelson, Pastor Craig Johnson, and Judy in, in the office, and all here at Tower View. Thank you for joining us. It's glad to have you. We are here for one purpose. We're here to study God's Word together. We are in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, Nehemiah chapter 2. You can find that in your Bibles. Before the Psalms, you can type that in your smartphone really fast, whatever's best for you, but we encourage you to go ahead and uh, to, to get in there as you join us. If you're not a Christian, we especially welcome you. Thank you for being with us this morning as we go through our time. Uh, we will be speaking with you as we go through, but we especially welcome you as well. Our website is towerviewkc.com, towerviewkc.com. We're in the midst of about a 12 or 13-week study here called The Story of New Beginnings. This is part two, The Story of New Beginnings. I'm going to read in its entirety, all 20 verses from Nehemiah chapter 2. So follow along as we read God's Word, and may God bless the hearing, reading, and doing of His Word. It's what God's Word says. It says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, verse 2, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And verse 4, the king then said to me, What are you requesting? And so I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, then send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, so that I might help rebuild it. And it goes on to say in verse 6, And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone and will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If, if it pleases the king, let the letters be given to me to the governors of the providence beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Verse 9, Then I, this is Nehemiah speaking, came to the governors of the providence beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king has sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So verse 11, I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. And I, verse 13, went by the valley of valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool 
but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then, verse 15, I went into the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. So come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them that the hand of my God had been upon me for good, and also the words of the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good of the work. But verse 19, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then verse 20, I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we are his servants. We'll arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Now that is a lengthy passage. We will break it down together as we continue our study, the story of new beginnings. And may God's word go forth. Everything else passes away, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray together as we continue on. Fathers, we come before you and look at this text. It happened so long ago, but Lord has such application for us even today. We are grateful for your word. It is a reminder to us, this is not just a history lesson, but this is your word. You put the story in here. You put the, the people in here. This is a historical account of things they went through as they tried to serve you. So, Lord, give us wisdom. Draw those in Christ to grow in you. Draw those without Christ to know you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the refreshing marks of young people is their idealism. Even if you know from years of experience that something isn't going to work out and isn't practical, a young person can inspire faith and hope in those who have, may have lost the vision somewhere in the many battles and daily things of life. Someone has said, ideals are like the stars. We never reach them, but like the, the, the mariners on the sea, we chart our course by them. But as you mature, you realize and you learn the real world isn't as quite perfect as you once had envisioned. I mean, if every college student could take every idea they have in college and put it in the real world and make it work, this world would be a much different place. But that's not, we don't live in a college classroom, we live in real life. One pastor, jaded pastor, put it this way. He says, originally, my life's goal was a huge silver banner with the words, win the world for Christ. Eventually, it became, well, maybe we can win one or two people for Christ. And now it's Try not to lose too many people in the name of Christ. And while it's overly pessimistic, there's a grain of wisdom buried in this pastor's comment. And we do well to think about it before we rush into serving the Lord, wherever that is. We've all heard of Murphy's Law. If anything could go wrong, it will. And so there are many variations of that. One says, the other lines move faster. This applies to all lines, whether you're at the bank, the grocery store, the toll booth, or customs. If you change lines then the line that you're originally in moves faster. Or when you're working on your car, the tool will, must drop in the center of the car's geographic center before it is ready to go. And all papers that you save will never be needed until such a time as they're disposed of when then they become essential. Friends, or as one person summed up, Murphy must have been an optimist. All these statements are exaggerations, of course, but they make us chuckle because they resemble somewhat of the real world we live in. 
if things don't go smoothly, even when we've prayed about it before. Following Jesus does not guarantee a trouble-free life. In fact, it often gets us into deeper trouble. But part of maturity is learning to deal with the world as it is, not as we would like it to be. In our service, Lane, our intern, read this verse, 2 Timothy 3.12. It says, Indeed, all who desire a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So even though Nehemiah was doing God's will, it wasn't all smooth and rosy. In fact, studying his life will help us on one hand not to be over-idealistic like a young person often is, and thus vulnerable to the disillusionment of life, but on the other hand, to be realistic while not giving up to the cynicism and dropping out of the negativity that's around us. Nehemiah faced real problems, just like we do, but he moved through them to great accomplishments. So friend, can I ask you a question today? Are you serving God, or do you want God to serve you in times like this? Will you serve God with whatever he's given you or wherever he sends you? And in what ways are you using your time and possessions to bless God and serve others as Nehemiah did? And the big idea today is simply this, is that the depth of our convictions about God fuels the intensity of our passion for serving God. Look, submission to God precedes knowledge of God. And every great risk in God's name begins with a confidence in the goodness and trustworthiness of God, just as Nehemiah did in the passage we read. We serve a God who would rather have us risk too much than to play it too safe. So where do you need to take a risk? Is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God leading you to start an application process or, or write a check for a missionary or walk across the street to a neighbor's door? And so this morning, as we look at these things, I want to, you to see eight traits of godly servants that are necessary for those who desire to serve God where they are and how they are. Not over-idealistic, not over-pessimistic, but in the real world, seeing how people before us have honored Christ and honored God. We'll see that godly servants have character, they have courage, they're fervent in prayer, they are busy with adequate planning, they exercise patience, they know when to move forward, they know how to motivate others and encourage others, and they're confident in God and they labor for God. Now, we reviewed last week that we got news from Hanani, uh, uh, Nehemiah's brother, that the walls of the holy city Jerusalem were still broken. Nehemiah and his people had been exiled many years before, and Nehemiah now serves as a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And he had mourned for days that God would grant him success, and the king would respond favorably and give him to what he needed. And we saw that in the passage that it answered, and it did. But he's prayed about it in the month of Nisan. It'd be like if he prayed about it now in January and didn't have a meeting with the king until April or May. And so he prayed that God would open a door for something with the king, and his prayer was answered. So I want you to see as we go through this, as we see these things, that, that, that this is not just a be like David or be like Paul or be like Nehemiah. That's part of it. But what we're seeing before us is exactly what the Lord of glory showed when he lived on this earth. He was all these things and sinlessly so. And so let's look at that first part. Number one, that godly servants have character. Number one, godly servants have character. Look back at verses one and two. It says, when the month of Nisan had passed, I took up wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. 
Look, Nehemiah clearly served faithfully in the king's court, and he served God faithfully by doing this. He didn't let his circumstances, he didn't let the surroundings define his faith and define the work that he did. His vocation, his job was part of his discipleship, and he, he apparently did it with much joy. Now, it's hard to be around someone that you don't like, and it's hard to be around someone that you know has done things to people you really do like. But he did it with such joy, when he was not joyful, it became clear. And, and the king knew something was wrong. The king had hundreds of servants. He had many people close to him. But for some reason, Nehemiah was singled out as a man of character, and we know why. It's because he, he was faithful day in and day out when the opportunity came. He did what they tell you in exercise, is just show up. You may not solve all your goals in that day, but just keep showing up, and eventually you'll get there. And God's people never know what their faithfulness today might provide for kingdom chances tomorrow. I mean, don't underestimate what, what God might do through you in your faithfulness. Think about Daniel, who continued to pray even though the king said he couldn't. Think about Esther, who at the, just the right time, at such a time as this, was able to save the people of God from utter destruction. And what about Joseph, who, who served God and was patiently serving God in jail, was raised up at the right time to save literally the known world from a famine that would have killed them. The point is, character counts. And when you are serving in your job, when you are trying to win people to Christ, one of the biggest mission fields that you have, whether it's virtual online in these days or it's actually in person still, is your character, your work ethic, your faithfulness, your ability to stick with something even when everyone else doesn't. Doesn't mean you have to be at the same company for 40 years. There's nothing wrong with that. But how we know our faith and how we see our faith should, should inform and be the foundation by how that plays out in situations such as our work. But the king asked him, he, he said, why? Uh, he, the king asked him a question in verse 2, and I want you to see this. He says in verse 2, he says, And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I, he said, was very much afraid. Well, why was he afraid? He's a man of character. He trusts in God. Yes, even godly people can be afraid at times. But he's afraid because, number one, he's a servant of the king. He's to go about his duty with joy and not be a distraction to the king. He's not to interact with the king. But his face was so different, he couldn't hide it. We don't know what informed this. We know that, that, that this is the first time that we've really seen uh, this, this phrase here that this joy has gone away. But did he do it intentionally? No, he was sad for his people and for the city, and for the kingdom of God, and that it just spread through his countenance. It literally overwhelmed him. He couldn't take it anymore. He had to be sad, yes, even in the king's presence. But I think something else is happening here that he's very much afraid of. His moment he's prayed for has now come. The moment he has sought and prayed for for three months, all those prayers in chapter one are now being fulfilled in front of his eyes, and the question is, is he ready? He'd asked the Lord for wisdom and success in the sight of this powerful king. He had said at the end of chapter 1, Lord, give me success. And here it is. And he's terrified. You can train for something all day, but until you perform it on stage or perform it in something, there really isn't much else that can be done. Now, he knows this could backfire. The king had stopped the wall building some years ago, back in Ezra 4, and he told them that Israel was, was a rebellious nation. And the king responded that the city was not to be rebuilt until he said so. So in doing this and bringing this up, Nehemiah, a man of character, a godly servant who had character, 
could be brought up on charges of treason and rebellion, just like Esther could have been. Friend, it's a reminder to us that those people who sing our praises really will always come and go. But the people who God loves and God serves and, and God blesses, I should say, are the people that are most faithful to the task when everyone else is gone. And that is a witness to us, and it's a witness to others, and it brings ultimate praise to God. So godly servants have, uh, have character. I want you to see, secondly, in these marks of godly servants, these eight, second of eight is that godly servants have courage. Look at verse 3. They have courage. And it says, Nehemiah said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, are lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. So what is he getting at here? What he's getting at is, is, is he's being tactful. He's being tactful. You know, so many times today, speaking your mind is considered just to be the most honest thing you can do. It doesn't matter how you say it. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter the tone or the, the voice or the inflection or whatever. As long as you speak your mind, the culture says, then go for you. Good for you. It doesn't matter if you're wrong. It doesn't matter if you're off base. As long as you're passionate about it and you speak your mind. But not Nehemiah. Nehemiah was tactful. And friends, that is a reminder to us in our evangelism as well. well I, I know so many times personally, I, I would just speak the truth so harsh and harshly to people. Yes, it was true, but there wasn't love in my heart. There wasn't tactfulness in my approach. It doesn't mean we should hide facts from people. It doesn't mean we should try and skirt the issues. But there's a way in which we do it. 1 Peter 3 tells us that we're to do it with gentleness. 3.15, excuse me, says we're always to have an answer for everyone who asks of us and do so with gentleness and respect. And so he says in verse 3, let the king live forever. He tells him why. And it's a courageous re response. Godly servants have courage. He doesn't accuse King Artaxerxes. He doesn't try to threaten him. Oh yeah, he has plenty of ammunition. As a Jew, he has plenty of things to say about these people who've destroyed them, who, who have not rebuilt them. He has plenty of things built up, but that's not where he goes. He says, let the king live forever. Friend, remember this, that vengeance is God's. Your job is simply to be what we said first, is be faithful with character and by God's grace and his spirit. It's not by my spirit or not by my strength or might, but it's by my spirit, Zechariah 4, 7, saith the Lord. So may that be our prayer. Lord, give me courage. Give me the words to say. Help me be as wise as a servant and as gentle as a dove, as our, our, our Savior says. So godly servants have courage. They have character. But number three, they have fervent prayer. Notice verse four. He says, then the king said to me, well, what are you requesting? <laughs> king doesn't beat around the bush, does he? He says, so I prayed to God, to the God of heaven. He prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, this is one of those heartfelt prayers in mind. I authored a small book several years ago called The Ten uh, Short Prayers of the Bible. It's on Amazon, an ebook, Ten Short Prayers of the Bible. And one thing you find about all the short prayers of the Bible is simply that they don't have time for formal prayer. It's a spontaneous thing. But it's because Nehemiah had a relationship, an ongoing, uh, vibrant relationship with the Lord, and especially in prayer, that his spontaneous prayers are natural. And he just prays about it. You know, you've done this too, haven't you? Something comes your way and you don't have time to go over here and get on your knees and pray or, you know, go get the prayer group together or whatever it is. It just says he prays. 
He's praying in response to the king. Before he answers the king, lowercase k, he goes to the king, uppercase k, the king of kings and lord of lords, and gets his answer first. There's fervent prayer. So in this moment, which may have just been a few seconds, honestly, he may have prayed something like this, Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, is this the moment I've been praying for? So Lord, let my words be your words. Let what you tell me to do be what I do, Lord, in this moment. We don't hear his prayer. It's something he says in his mind, in his body, in his soul, to himself. But praise God, he hears him. And that is the reminder. So Christian, are you marked by fervent prayer? Or are you just those short, pithy prayers like Peter was when he walked out on the water? Save me, Lord! You know, those types of things. There's nothing wrong with those. But does your prayer life continually feed yourself through the week spiritually? So that when you come to a moment when you don't have time to sit down and pray formally or for a long time, you can shoot up a prayer to God and say, Lord, here it is. And it's not unnatural for you. It's just an extension of what you've already have in your life. So godly servants have courage. They have character. They're fervent in prayer. But number four, notice in verses five to 10, that godly servants are busy with adequate planning. Godly servants are busy with adequate planning. Again, there's great respect here from Nehemiah, and he says in verse 5, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, we've had that phrase a lot in here, if it pleases the king, he makes a request. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Nehemiah was very specific here. He'd be he had been praying about these issues, these details, but he'd also been, 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 been scheming, been planning so that when this opportunity, this moment of truth came, he would have a quick answer. And so he, he, he makes the request. And verse 6 tells us that the queen was there. That's not just a, a fun note. That's a historical note in the context to tell us this, is that the queen was there. This was probably a very private dinner. And, and so there was more access to the king than there was before. You couldn't just walk up to the king and ask a question. You had to have an audience. And of course, God being uh, God had put Nehemiah in a position where he was ready to have an audience with the king when the time was right. And the king asked him, how long will you be gone? And Nehemiah responds with, how long? And then he requests the provision for passages for the safety and building. Look, how does a cupbearer <laughs> cup know all these plans? I am sure Nehemiah talked to people who knew. I'm sure Nehemiah became an expert in things. He wasn't an expert in things before. But the one thing that never changed, no matter how much planning he made, is his faith first was heavenward. God, as I plan these details, you move me out of the way. Isn't this what Proverbs tells us? Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord who directs his steps. And so it's, it's like going to a church meeting or a prayer meeting or heading into a counseling appointment. Somehow people see this as sub-spiritual because the spontaneous, they say, is how the Spirit works. That's nonsense. All the pastors of our staff or anyone who prepares a sermon here knows it takes hours. You don't just jump in and blab out a sermon. You can do that. You can certainly do that. But more so, you do so with preparation. Fervent prayer doesn't cancel out planning, and planning doesn't cancel out fervent prayer. They go hand in hand in some sense. But then he goes to the land with the letters in hand, and you see the king send him out in verses 7 through 10, with mounted men and horsemen. What a change of status. Nehemiah, although in a very important position, in a very prominent position, 
being closest to the most powerful man in the world, now is the leader, in fact, the master builder. He's now the master general, and he's doing all this, but it took adequate planning. And so you see that his arrival would not have gone unnoticed, and his authority was very, very clear. He took the king's sealed papers with him. That took planning, but it also took a lot of prayer. And along as he comes, as we get to verse 10, you see these names. He goes down to verse 10, and it says, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly. And someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Mark my words, friend, Christian, you will never be a friend of this world. The Bible tells us if you're serving God, if you're serving his kingdom, if you're trying to advance and win people for Jesus Christ, people will oppose you. It should not be anything new. Actually, as we often say, the, 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 the lack of opposition means we probably aren't doing the things the way we should. But when opposition is there, when we are trying to sincerely serve God and it's there, that's a mark to us that we're on the right path. And so Sambalat, the Horonite, we have documents from 407 BC that he was mentioned to be governor of Syria. Tobiah, the Ammonite, this is probably, as it says, just a servant of Sambalat or a, a, a governmental puppet in some way there. And Geshem, the Arab, was some type of chief in northwest Arabia. Uh, archaeologists have found cups that were given to the gods by him. And other sources through those early historic years say he controlled Edom and Arabia. And this is a big triumvirate. This is a big three-headed monster trying to take it over. But as he prayerfully planned out these details, as a godly servant would, this does not surprise Nehemiah because it didn't surprise God. They hated him because he was trying to serve God, and they hated him because he was trying to serve especially God's people. So godly servants have courage, they have character, they're fervent in prayer, they're busy with adequate planning. And number five, godly servants exercise patience. Notice verses 11 through 15. It's a very interesting passage here. You would think with all this pomp and all this circumstance and all this planning that Nehemiah would have this great scheme ready. He would, he would be commanding people like a FedEx or UPS supply center. We have some folks in our church who've worked there over the years. And you know, those things just go on. They just go on without a hitch every time. Things, you know, things stop every now and then, but for the most part, they're as efficient as efficient can be because efficiency equals uh, a, a wealth or, or profit at that point. But it says, and I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night and a few men with me. I want you to see this. He waited on the Lord three days, just as he waited on the Lord for three or four months to have the right moment to approach the king and did nothing. He's at the southern tip of the city and he goes on the western side and he inspects the walls and the gates that are burned. And he goes to the fountain gate in the king's pool, the same pool uh, that, that one of the men in, in John was healed with, where it said the angel used to stir up the waters. And there was no space for the animal because the destruction was still there. They, they didn't have earth movers back then. They didn't have big machineries to move big plots of rock and, and, and granite. But what Nehemiah is doing is he's taking assessment of the situation. And so after three days, he's ready for action. Now here at the church, if you're, if you're one of our members, you know, you know, that our church property has some uh, backs up to some woods just down the road at 48th and Randolph. And over the years, 
Many things have been proposed for that. It was going to be a quick trip. It was going to be a retirement home. It was going to be a, a, a multi-housing unit. And every time they propose something, if you're a longtime Tower View member, you know exactly what's going to happen. There's great excitement around the project. And then usually within a few months, things die down and the land is up for sale again because no one wants to mess with the project itself. So can you see these people saying to Nehemiah, Nehemiah, you've only been here three days and we've tried this before. In fact, we've had some pretty doggone good ideas, Nehemiah, before you came and they didn't work out. We're going to be here long after you die. And in fact, we don't want to rebuild these walls. We just want you to leave us alone and we want you to just go about your way and get out of our way as we live our life the way we want to live our life. But Nehemiah is patient. That's mark number five. He's patient. Nehemiah is patient as a leader. He spent three to four months in prayer. He waited three days. But once he's convicted enough, once he's convinced enough that this is what God would have him do, he's ready to lead and go forward. And Christian, you need to know that too. One of the hardest things to do is waiting on the Lord. Maybe you're praying for someone to come to Christ. Maybe you're praying for wisdom in a situation. Maybe you're praying um, for, for a job. Maybe you're praying for lots of things. And, and we don't just sit idly on our hands. Part of waiting on the Lord is actively living our faith as Nehemiah did. He didn't just sit in his room in the royal palace. He served the king. He prayed. He sought after God. But he waited with patience. And he's ready to lead. And he's ready to go forward. And so number six, godly servants not only have character, they not only have conviction and courage, they not only are fervent in prayer, they're adequate planners and they're patient. But number six, godly servants know when to move forward. Look at verse 16. They know when to move forward. He says in verse 16, and the officials didn't know where I'd gone or what I was doing. And I'd not yet told the Jews and the priests and the nobles and the officers and the rest who were to do the work. You know, there... In this day and age where everything seems to be, the, the, the mantra is, is to be transparent, be honest, spill the beans, tell us everything. Nehemiah reminds us that, there, that, that godly servants know when to move forward. There are times, church, as a pastor, that, that we can't share every detail with you about a situation with people in our church, or we can't share every detail about a committee meeting, or we can't do this or do this or do this or do this. But one thing is true in all this, is that when the time is right, we're going to move forward. When the time is right, we're going to get things going. When the time is right, we're going to go and do these things. You know, you know this as a, as a uh, if you're married, uh, people, you would ask someone, well, how do you know when you're ready to get married? And what do they say? They usually say something to this effect. You'll know. You'll know when the time's right. You'll feel it. You get, you'll get it. And so Nehemiah, in a greater sense, as he looked to God, knew when to move forward. And this is a personal application for you as well, Christian that when you're sharing the gospel, that when you're praying for someone, that there's a right moment and a right time. It doesn't mean you unfaithfully or you said idly again, but you pray for that wisdom. Lord, what is the right time? But if God's told you to do something in Scripture and you're not doing it, that is sin. But there's a time, even amidst all that stuff, that you can be faithful or faithless while you think you're being faithful, while waiting for the right time and not going forward. So godly servants know when to move forward. They, they're, they're patient. They adequately plan. They're, they're fervent in prayer. They have, they, 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 they are, have character. They're, they have courage. But I want you to also see here 
that godly servants, number seven, are a motivator and encourager of others. They're a motivator and encouragers of others. Look at verse 17. It tells us here what he says. Then I, Nehemiah, said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with gates burned. So come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer in derision. As a good leader, Nehemiah says, look, here's the problem. But they are also suffering. He doesn't talk about their lack of safety. Instead, he highlights the nation's disgrace. He tells them that this is the city of the kingdom. This is the city that God promised the Messiah would come through. This is the city that God has said the throne of David would live forever. This is our city. Let's reclaim it. Let's, let's move forward and let's do this. And church, that's what we need to have the same vision for as well. The gates of hell will never prevail against the church of God as long as it stays faithful. It'll be attacked. The walls may be broken, so to speak. But when God says, go forward in faith, we, like Nehemiah, can do so. And that ought to motivate us. That ought to encourage us. Because this is setting the scope of all redemptive history. Well, pastor, we haven't seen anyone come to Christ lately. Or pastor, the COVID restrictions. Or pastor, we don't have the resources. Or, or this or that or that or the other. That's what the people had said before. And Nehemiah says, hey guys, it's a new day. I mean, look at the language of the pronouns here. He says the trouble that we are in. Let us build the walls. It's plural. This is someone who is, who, for, for lack of a better word, is not a natural born leader in the sense of most leaders. He's been brought up in a different path in a different way. But this is servant, godly leadership. Jesus said, the greatest among you shall be servants. The last shall be first. The first shall be last. Jesus said he came not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. Christian, the greatest hope we have is not when we can get rid of masks or when we can get a vaccine or whatever it is. The greatest hope we have is found in Jesus Christ. And you know this. Nehemiah's zeal, though, was infectious, and he stirred people up. You know, this looks different. We're, 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 we're taking a break from hugging and doing some other things we used to do. But when's the last time you try to encourage someone to keep moving forward in their faith? When's the last time you encourage someone to go forward without fear of whatever's around the corner? Doesn't mean you live an undisciplined life. Doesn't mean you live a sloppy life. It doesn't mean any of those things. But he says that he said, let's do this. And he wanted to move forward. And why did he want to move forward? Well, verse 18 tells you. He says in verse 18, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been good upon me for good, and also the words the king has spoken. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hearts and for the good work. Why were they motivated? They were motivated because there was someone who didn't let circumstances define their joy. They were secondly motivated because they saw that God was with Nehemiah. And they saw all that God had done. When's the last time we sat down and literally, as the old song says, we counted our blessings? When was it? How, how long has it been? But God's good hand was with them. Nehemiah, you know, it's interesting as we were sitting around discussing this uh, with some seminary students in our church uh, today about this passage. You know, you never see Nehemiah with a direct commission. He's never given a, a word from the Lord that says, go. But all along, he senses God's call. And all along, God continues to bless him, provide for him, answer his prayers, and clear the path and clear the way. Doesn't mean that he's without opposition. Doesn't mean the work's going to be easy. But God has put him at the right place at the right time. God's good hand had been with him. And Christian, 
I want to remind you of that. If you've been saved in Christ, God's good hand was with you. And if you're not a Christian, you're hearing this today. Jesus Christ loves you. He lived the life you couldn't live, and he died the death. You should have died. And on that cross, he took the punishment you deserve, the wrath of God for your sin. He was buried, and three days later, he rose literally, bodily, physically, historically from the grave, and that he says that if you will trust in him, you will be saved. Come to Christ. Turn to him. So godly servants are motivators and encouraging of others. They know when to move forward. They're patient. They're busy, adequately planning. They're fervent in prayer. They're courageous. They have character. And finally, number eight, godly servants are confident in God and labor for God. Notice verse 19. It says, but when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it. Now, just stop right there. You think these three are just kind of hanging out together like you would socially distant, of course, in these days. They're not just hanging out together. These are leaders of regions. So the word would have traveled quickly, but together these three separate leaders, or at least two leaders and a servant, heard this, and it says they jeered. They, they made fun of them and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Look, his focus is on God and giving glory to God. And that's what motivates him. That's what stirs him. He tells them of the problem, but reminds them of authority. Well, how does he do that? Well, he tells you right here. This is what he says. Look at what he says. He says in verse 20, Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. He says, here's the problem. But he says, but God gave me a vision, you troublers of Israel. He's in authority, and we can trust him. This project isn't about Nehemiah, it's about God. It's about his glory, it's about his kingdom, it's about the advancement of his kingdom. He doesn't mean he's meaning a goal, but rather he continues as a servant and comes to the kingdom labor for the glory of God. For we desperately need people, both in leadership and in followership, today in churches who can do this very thing. That we will commit to saying to God's enemies, we trust in our Lord we're confident in him, and we're going to labor for him, and you can make fun of us like people did Noah when he built the ark. You can laugh at us like you did Nehemiah. You can say all sorts of things about our Savior, but this one thing is true. He is risen. He's risen indeed, and that is our confidence because we know we don't do this in vain. That we will commit ourselves to raise up godly men and women to be servant leaders in this kingdom and in our church that we would send them out by the dozens, even the hundreds from a small church such as ours, that there would be workers in the workplace at Tower View who live by character. There would be moms who are led by godliness. There would be those who, 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 who heed the, the call of Jesus where he said the, 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 uh, the fields are white for harvest, but the workers are few. Ready for the harvest, but the workers are few. Christian, you need to know these things. And if you're not a Christian, I especially, and I'm going to credit Lane for this. I think it's a great insight our intern had, one I haven't quite considered to the depth that he shared. But if you're not a Christian, listen to verse 20 again. The God of heaven will make us prosper, and his servants will arise, speaking to these three, these three leaders or two leaders and a servant, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Christian, 
you already have a right or a claim because of Jesus Christ. He loved you, and now you love him. He loved you first, now you love him. But if you're not a Christian, you have no right, you have no claim, you have no security in the God that we serve, the God of Nehemiah, the God of the Bible, the only true God. The only way to be assured that you have a right or a claim in heaven is not anything you could do, but it's all what Jesus did. It's in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the perfect person and work of Jesus Christ, where he died as your substitute. He gave his life. He rose again. He ascended to heaven. He, he forgives all your sin, and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. My friend, that's a choice you have to make. And Nehemiah was speaking physically uh, with these men that we are going to rebuild, but the spiritual reality was even greater. He said, you can't touch my God. He was like David in 1 Samuel 17, who when Goliath was cussing out, and that's really what it was, cursing and cussing out the God of heaven. David, in very simple language, and Darianese said this, he said, how dare you call my God those things? My God is the only true God. And by faith, he took that rock and he slung it at that giant and down he went. Christian, you have that victory already in Christ. But if you're not a Christian, Christ has won the victory for you. He loves you so much, he gave his life for you. Won't you turn to him? Friends, it'll be exciting in the next couple of weeks as we see what happens with Nehemiah. But one thing is true. One thing that he taught us is true is that the depth of our conviction about God will always fuel the intensity of our passion for God as we serve him. Let's close in prayer today as we do. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for this opportunity to come. Father, as we know that godly servants are courageous, Lord, they're, they're, they're filled with character. Father, they are adequate planners. Lord, they, they're fervent in prayer. Lord, they try uh, in all things to, to serve you in those, those respects. Father, we know godly servants are confident and labor for you. They know how to motivate and encourage others. They know when to move forward. They exercise patience. Father, may we do all these things as we serve you. I know serving you may look different in this pandemic, but Lord, just as you led Nehemiah in a time and a place where he was limited in scope and resources and opportunities, so Lord, as we wait on you, you will lead us to the proper place. Give us wisdom today, and especially praying for all those watching, listening, hearing that are not um, part of the body of Christ, have never been saved, brought again, regenerated, whatever you want to call it. Father, would you do a work in their hearts to draw them close to you? Lord, we love you so much. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, thanks so much for joining us again. My name is Pastor Darren. On behalf of uh, Pastor Nelson recording this sermon and, and others, we are going to be able and ready to help you whenever we can. Drop us a message, text or call us at 816-368-1330, towerofukc.com. We'd love to connect with you. But especially in these days, your God is bigger than covid your God is bigger than all the, the things in this world. And Nehemiah shows us that. May God bless you. Have a great day. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. And happy Lord's Day Sunday today as well.